All right, our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Let's go ahead and let's pray before we open this portion of God's Word together. Father, we need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would open the pages of the Bible this morning, that this living Word, which was breathed out by you, as it is read and as it is preached, that it would minister to us. For that to happen, your Spirit must attend to our spirits. And so we pray that your Spirit would stir within us and that we would be affected that we would be moved, that we would be informed, that we would be taught. As we hear the Word, meet each of us where we have need, and minister to us each individually as only you can do by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, this is the holy and errant Word of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Though the grass withers... And the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I witnessed um, a scene like this passage time and time again over a number of years when I lived in Dallas, Texas. I would drive down to the seminary that I attended, and I would drive by this corner about 7 a.m. in the morning there at the corner of Live Oak Street, which was about a, a block from the seminary, Live Oak Street and Swiss Street. And there at the corner of Live Oak Street and Swiss Street, there would 
be at 7 a.m. in the morning, a gathering of maybe 30, 40, 50, 70 men that would stand on this corner. And they would stand on this corner and some truck would stop by. It may be a, a landscaping truck. It might be a general contractor. It might be a painter. And he would be in a pickup truck and he would point at three, four, five, seven men. And they would jump in the back of this pickup truck and they would go off. He had hired them for the day. About 10 o'clock, everybody would disperse because no more trucks were coming by and so nobody else would be hired for that day. We see something similar in this passage. The master of the house, he goes out early to the marketplace and he goes there to hire laborers for his vineyard. He agrees to pay them one denarius for one day's labor. That was a, a fair wage. That's what a a day worker would normally receive, and so he gathered some and he sent them off to his vineyard. But then after a few hours, he returns back to the marketplace, and we find that he encounters others. And as Matthew tells us, they were idle, these people. And so the vineyard owner goes to them and he hires them and sends them to his vineyard. A few hours later, he returns yet again, and he does the very same thing. So it's now kind of unlike Dallas or any of these major cities where you might have people gathering like this on a corner because he's continuing throughout the day, and he hires more who have been idle, and he sends them off to work in the vineyard. And then finally, he comes back at the 11th hour, and he finds more standing there, and he asks this, why do you stand here idle all day? And then he hires them. The parable, though it is a little different from what I saw in Dallas, it doesn't seem so strange at this point. But then all of a sudden it changes, doesn't it? It feels very strange. Because the master at the end of the day, he instructs his paymaster, his foreman, to pay all the people that have labored in the field, in the vineyard. So the ones that were hired at the crack of dawn and those that were hired in mid-morning and those that were hired at noon and those that were hired in the middle of the afternoon and then those that were hired just at dusk, just an hour before quitting time, they were all to be paid. And they were all paid the same amount. We hear that and within us there is this natural reaction. That's unfair. Jesus, that isn't fair. To add salt to the injury, when the master tells the paymaster to distribute the money to all of these workers, he says in verse 8, pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. The master not only wants each paid the same, he wants everyone to see that everyone is paid the same. Now, if imagine this scene, you have these workers that were hired at the, at the break of day, and they have gone into the field, and they have labored all day, and they had negotiated, we're told, at the beginning of this passage for one denarius of, of payment for a day's labor. And so, no doubt, as they are standing there, and it's done in reverse order, and they see that those who were hired just an hour before the day was over, that they received a denarius. They surely had to be saying to themselves and to one another, well, if they get a denarius, think how much we're going to get. 
We've been laboring, as they say, under the scorching heat all day. We've worked hard. And yet they received the same. It's not fair. The master in this parable represents God. And if God was an employer in our modern system today, he would be reported to the Labor Relations Board after a scene like this. Or we might take him aside and say, now I know that you're God and I know that you have your prerogatives, but let's have a conversation about economics because it doesn't seem like you understand. Or we might say to to God, listen, I understand that you are almighty, but listen, if you reward these people that have been idle all day, the same as people that worked all day, you will be encouraging other people to be lazy and to be idle all day. God, this just isn't fair. This doesn't seem right. Now, Jesus, when he's giving us this parable, he is not addressing the social work conditions of his day. He is not telling us about labor relations. He surely isn't advocating a kind of socialism here. So the question is, is what is he doing? What is it that Jesus wants you and I to understand from this parable? What is the point of this parable? When you and I interpret parables, we have to understand that with parables, there is usually one main point that is being offered to us that we are to seize a hold of. So what's the point here? Well, to answer that, we have to understand that here in Matthew 20, this opening passage is connected to Matthew 19. And Matthew 20 is intimately connected with Matthew 19. So if you look back at Matthew 19... Look at how Matthew and Jesus point this out to us. In Matthew 19, verse 30, Jesus says, But many who are first will be last in the last first. And then you go to the end of our passage in Matthew 20, and what does Jesus say? So the last will be first and the first last. He's bookending it. And so what's he doing? He's saying this statement I made at the end of chapter 19, this is a parable that explains to you that statement. Well, so then the question becomes, well, why does Jesus make that statement? The first will be last, and the last will be first. Well, we have to go back up and see why it is he made that statement at the end of chapter 19. And if we go back up to verse 27 there in chapter 19, we see that Peter is asked a question. Jesus' statement is in response to Peter's question, and Peter's question is this. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus tells this entire parable to correct Peter's bad theology. Now, Peter, he's just off just a little bit, just a a half degree. What I would say is he just has the wrong tincture. He's not quite tuned in how he needs to be tuned in. And so Jesus tells this entire parable to correct where Peter has gone astray. Peter's missed it. And what's he missed? He's missed the beauty of God's sovereign grace. 
beauty of God's sovereign grace. Four points this morning. First, let us be shocked by the beauty of God's sovereign grace. That's Jesus' concern, his main concern in this parable, that you and I would be shocked and in awe of God's sovereign grace. This parable, it makes zero economic sense. That's the point. It's meant to shake you and I. It's meant to rattle us from within. Be shocked, Jesus is saying. He says, as the master to the people that are complaining, it's very kind, friend, you've lost nothing. And I am doing nothing wrong, he says in verse 17. All the day laborers, they had agreed to the amount the master had given them. He wasn't doing them wrong. He wasn't doing something that was unjust. They just didn't like his graciousness. They were conditioned by the world. The world gives based upon ability and work. You work longer hours, you receive more pay. You have greater abilities, you receive more reward. But Jesus is making the point that God's kingdom is not a meritocracy. His kingdom is built upon the foundation of His sovereign grace. Grace isn't the product of a mathematical problem. You can't put all kinds of things on this side of the equation and somehow get grace on the other side of the equation. There isn't a one-to-one correlation. As much as we give, then that much we receive. It's not like a great vending machine, where if I do this much work, then this much grace pops out. It's a wrong view. Remember the story of the prodigal son and You remember that the elder brother had this kind of worldly mentality that we see here with these worldly workers here. He's worked. He's been committed. He is respectable. And his younger brother has run off with his dad's fortune and he's squandered it. And yet, his father is throwing a party for that heinous sinner. And the older brother is looking at it and says, he doesn't deserve it. That isn't fair. He doesn't deserve it. I've been respectable. I've been commendable. I've stuck close. He squandered everything. He doesn't deserve it. And that's grace. The older brother has a a mercenary spirit about him. He works to earn. And in one very real sense, he is in a worse place than his younger brother was ever in. We never, ever labor to get from God. We never labor to get from God. Now, we labor for God out of thanksgiving. We labor for God out of love. We labor for God out of gratefulness. But grace changes the entire paradigm. It turns economics on its head. We receive for doing nothing and give not to get, but because we already have. 
I want you to hear me very clearly. God owes you nothing. Nothing. And God will never owe you anything. He owes you nothing. Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to understand from this parable. Salvation, the gift of the kingdom, that it flows from God's sovereign grace. He wants us to be shocked by that grace. Peter's just off. Just off just a a little bit. Not completely dialed in to the program of the kingdom. He's confused. He's focused on what he has done for Jesus. And Jesus is reminding him and us, and he's reminding Peter, whatever you receive will be a gracious gift from God. Whatever you receive. If we take Peter's viewpoint here as if what we do then merits us reward from God, then salvation is no longer of grace. Grace demanded or grace even expected is a redefinition of grace, and that is in fact no grace. As Michael Horton once said, every step, every step of salvation is God moving towards us. At no point does He wait for us to take a few steps towards Him. He is active. We are acted upon. Peter, how is it that you gave up everything and followed Jesus? Grace. You were given grace. The purpose of this parable is not to say all will receive the same reward in heaven, but rather that all that we do receive is by His sovereign grace. Now we can get off. Again, our tincture can be wrong. We say, ah, I'm doing all this labor for the glory of God and to store treasures in heaven. And we think about those rewards in heaven as, as, as if there's some kind of contract labor agreement. You'll hear people say things like this all the time. Ah, I just stored a treasure in heaven. Extra jewel for me in that crown. That's a misunderstanding. It misses the economy of grace. You can't buy God's grace. You can't store up God's grace. You can't cause God's grace. You can't barter for God's grace. It is clear that we're rewarded according to what we've done in the flesh, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, and yet still, Whatever I receive in glory is a result of His sovereign grace and His sovereign grace alone. Jesus makes this point in Luke 17. He is telling another parable and He's talking about all these things that we have been commanded. And He says, if you have done all of these things that are commanded, He says, at the end of the day, you can only say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Whatever He gives to us, it's of His grace. And that should amaze us. 
That should astound us. That should grip us. It should humble us. Second, be continually shocked by God's grace. Be continually shocked by God's grace. Peter, though we don't have to just pick on Peter because it is true of most of us. Peter has become enthralled with his own press clippings. And he thinks that he is doing great things for Christ, and in light of what he has done, he begins to have a dimmer view of God's grace to him in Christ. And it's easy, especially after you've labored for Christ for years or decades. I mean, Peter has been walking with Christ for three years, and so all of a sudden, this grace becomes common, becomes expected. And that always begins with a lack of thankfulness. We begin to get comfortable with grace. It doesn't quite amaze anymore. We're not like it did at one point. Think about like a man working in Colorado Springs, and he's at the base of the Rocky Mountains, and he wakes up each morning, and he gets in his car, and he drives to work, and he labors at work, and then he comes home, and he's fighting the traffic, and he gets in the front door, and he hasn't once thought about the grandeur of the mountains that are outside, and that were on the landscape that whole time. It's, it's become common to him, the beauty of that landscape. I'm sure people say that about us when they come to Lansing. This is lost on us. All the unbelievable beauty here. Remember, a relative of mine who lives in Florida only lived about a mile from the beach. I remember asking him one time, I, I said, so how often do you just go to the beachfront and gaze upon the ocean? And he said, eh, a lot less than you would think. Maybe one or two times a year. Yeah, that's less than I would think. I can remember the first time as a kid when I stood on a beach on the Atlantic Ocean. And I was amazed. I remember the first time our family took a vacation to Colorado. And I remember seeing those mountain peaks rise above the clouds. I'd never seen something so big. I was amazed. I remember when I first received the grace of Christ. And I was amazed. And yet what is so amazing can all of a sudden become dull and dreary and uh, common. The story is told of a, a university professor who, on the first day of the semester, he handed out a syllabus, and on the syllabus, there were three papers that the students needed to write over the course of the semester, and 
each paper had a date that that paper needed to be turned in. And so he pointed out all the students in the class and he said, you see the dates, these are inflexible dates for each of the three papers. I want to see a head nod of every student in this classroom. You have seen the dates and it registers and they all nodded their heads. And so the first paper was due, the date had come and everybody turned in their papers and the professor went to his office and there was a young man standing outside of his office. And the young man had not turned in his paper and he pled with the professor. He said, listen, we have as a family experienced a lot of different trials over the last weeks and months. I have had my own personal issues and he explained those. And he said, I am very close. If you just give me one more day, I'll turn in the paper. And the professor and that sovereign mercy that only professors have, David Shane, uh, extended grace to him and said, you can turn it in tomorrow. And so the young man went away, leaping down the hall, singing the praises of his professor. Best professor ever! Second due date comes, and the papers are handed in, and now when the professor goes to his office, there are four people standing there. This young man and three of his closest friends who have not turned in their papers. And they give the same story. Professor, we have had all kinds of hardships. The family has had problems. They each have their own story. And so this professor, in an act of mercy and grace, says, I'll give you one more day. Ah, a whole chorus of praise to the professor. Best professor ever. As I go down the hall. The third paper's due date comes. And Professor collects the papers and he goes back to his office and now there is a line snaking around the hall from his office. Half the class has not turned in their papers. And the professor dismisses the group and says, you knew the due date. And instead of a chorus of best professor ever, it is a chorus of booze and you can't do this. This is unfair. The professor is curious, how is this unfair, he asks. And they say, well, you gave the other four, you gave them okay grades. You didn't diminish their grades for turning in late. He said, you're right. So he got his ledger. He begins to mark down their grades. So the four protest, wait, that's not fair. And the professor asks, well, what is not fair? Justice or mercy? When he went away, he commented to the other professors, they had grown accustomed to my grace. They've grown accustomed to my grace. Peter's grown accustomed to his grace. We can become accustomed to his grace. And it doesn't just continue to wow anymore. May that never be. Third, as a recipient of God's grace, be a giver of grace. The first workers, they don't want the late workers to be recipients of grace. They don't want the master to give them grace, and they don't extend grace themselves to their fellow workers. But when we know grace, we extend grace, and we rejoice at seeing others receive grace. 
But there's a tendency. There's a tendency in the church for us to believe. I think that we are more mature Christians than others, maybe because we understand more intellectually about the Christian faith. Maybe because we have worked harder than others in service to our master, like these workers. Or maybe because, like Peter, we have sweated more or endured more or suffered more. And we believe, well, that makes us more. And since we are more, we deserve more. We deserve more from others and what they think of us. And we deserve more from God. But the great sign of maturity in the Christian faith is humble love. When we've been gripped by grace, we extend grace, and we rejoice at seeing others receive grace. Some of the hardest working Christians know Christ the least. Some of the headiest Christians understand the Christian faith the least. Some of the greatest theologians are the worst of disciples. I was with elders. We were having a meeting this week, and we were reading through Philemon together, and we were thinking about something along these lines together, and we were talking about, isn't it interesting how much grace Paul lavishes upon people in his letters. I mean, you just take Philemon. It'll take you all of two minutes to read. And look at all the grace that he lavishes upon people because of all the grace that he has received. My favorite is what he says about Philemon. Philemon, who is a man of incredible grace, he says this about Philemon. He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I love that. That is my favorite thing said about anybody besides Christ in the Scriptures. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I've told my family over the years, I'm not there yet. I have a long ways to go. I told them one of my great aims in life is that when I die, I hope they can put that on my tombstone as an epitaph because it's true. The hearts of the saints were refreshed by him. He so loved Christ that he so loved Christ's people that people were refreshed being around him in grace. I can remember when I was hit in my Christian life with the fact that I didn't understand grace. I was in seminary. I was a seminary student. I was learning Hebrew and Greek. And if any of you had asked me about it, I would have told you I was. I would have told you if, even if you didn't ask me. I could wax eloquent about the perichoresis and the hypostatic union and the eschaton. I knew a lot, or so I thought. I remember I was reading a book one day, and all of a sudden I was convicted that my marriage didn't know grace. My home wasn't filled with grace. 
I had been a recipient of grace, but I was not an extender of grace. In my heart, I played the critic with my young wife. I worked harder than she did. She owed me. My cup needed to be filled. I deserved. I didn't know grace. Though I was a recipient of grace. This happens over and over in the church. If you find yourself continually upset by your brothers and sisters in Christ, you just might be there. If you find yourself consistently judging the actions or the non-actions, the words or the non-words of others, you just might be there. If you find yourself more upset by the sins of others than you are by your own sins, you just might be there. If you find that you grouse and you complain inwardly or outwardly about others, how easy their lives are, what blessings they enjoy, what grace seems to flood their life, then you just might be there. As recipients of grace, we are givers of grace. One of Ernest Hemingway's birthdays, his Christian mother sent him a letter. And in that letter, she explained to Ernest Hemingway that when a child is born into the world, there is a, a bank account that both the mother and the child share. And she said that as that child comes into the world, all they can do is, is withdraw from that bank account. They have inability to add anything to it. But she said it seems like it is an inexhaustible bank account. But because of those early years and the child not being able to give much, but only to take, the child will keep drawing down that bank account. And so as the child gets older, the child is to make deposits into that bank account. In fact, it's incumbent upon the child to make deposits into that bank account because if they don't, it will dry up. And so Ernest Hemingway's mother provided some practical application for him. Here are some ways you can do that. You could buy me gifts, flowers, candy. You could decide that you want to pay my bills all of a sudden one day out of the blue. But this is how she closed the letter. Above all else, she said, this is how you make deposits into the account. By no longer neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, is it any wonder that Hemingway found both his mom and Jesus to be ungracious? We've received grace. We give grace. Christ is not ungracious. I want you to finally notice this very fact. The unmatched pursuit of our sovereign God of grace. It's easy to miss. But you notice that while the workers are laboring in the field, the master continues to search for new laborers. Verse 3, and going out. Then in verse 5, going out again. Then verse 6, he went out and found others. He goes in search. These individuals are not seeking him. They are idle. 
They're lazy, good-for-nothings. And they're standing there. And he goes in search of them. He goes after them. He says, in answer to the accusation at the end of the complaining worker, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That is sovereign grace. God can do whatever He wants. He can choose to choose whatever He wants. And He chooses to go after. He chooses to seek. He chooses to find. He chooses to show compassion and mercy and grace. That account of the prodigal son after he is squandered all of his father's resources that were given to him and he had abandoned the comfort of his father's home for the squalor of a pig stall. We read in that passage, but while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He sees him. By His sovereign grace. Just like the Master, He goes after Him. Friends, the fact that you and I, if we are in the kingdom, it is only a result of His sovereign grace, should be your heart's greatest delight. If it has grown stale, Oh, you need to cry out, Lord, awaken me to this wonderful, awe-inspiring mystery again. It should be the thing that makes you more joy-filled than anything else. His sovereign grace was shown to me and all of the kingdom of heaven and all the rewards of heaven are mine. Because he just gave it. He just gave it. That should amaze, that should shock, and that should delight. I pray that's the case for you today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for so great a salvation. And what we could not do, you have provided. We are thankful that it is all of you and none of us. Forgive us, O Father, that your grace is too often treated commonly by us. It does not delight us as it should. It does not cause us to erupt in thanksgiving throughout our days and weeks as it should. It does not motivate us to holy service as it should. And we are thankful that your grace is even sufficient for that. We do pray that we would be more filled with awe and wonder and shocked and delighted by the gift of your sovereign grace. And may we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.